there are uh, many signs uh, discernible to the wise that the retreat will be ending soon. But I'd like to uh, reframe that (laughs) and suggest, as we often do, that another way to look at it is that the second half of the retreat begins at 11 a.m. tomorrow. And in fact, the second half is in a way more challenging than the first half. First half definitely has its challenges. But the second half, uh, what happens after 11, is quite challenging. How to bring metta into our daily lives, into our lives, we might say, in the world. So that's what I'd like to explore for this talk. And we'll explore it more uh, tomorrow morning, and particularly tomorrow morning in terms of the transition from the immediate transition from retreat to daily life and some other words. And we'll also have uh, time for uh, questions and so forth uh, tomorrow morning. There's a phrase which has um, inspired me, which comes from the great Tibetan uh, yogi named uh, Shabkar who lived in the uh, 18th and 19th century and was a wandering yogi. And the, the phrase is, let your life and practice be one. And that's, that's challenging. You know? So I want to explore uh, a few different ways that we can, in particular, bring the metta practice into our daily lives, in the multiple uh, parts of our daily lives, so that the um, energy of metta, the spirit of metta, becomes more and more um, our way of being. And this is, um, this is pretty challenging, as I've said. I think, uh, I think we all know that, that, um, how should we say it, the, um, whereas this retreat is in a way set up to cultivate mindfulness and metta, we might not say that of downtown San Francisco <laughs> or uh, even um, much of what we experience in our lives. So it's challenging. I think that it's, for me, it's the great, uh, or at least one of the great questions of our times is how do we do this? How do we find the different kinds of supports to have our practice be alive in our daily lives? How to do that? So what I want to explore in the talk are some of, the, uh, some of the supports that many of us have found useful for bringing metta into daily life. Some of them will be uh, probably more, more personal from that I have found useful. But it's really a kind of a, um, a collective effort and a collective sharing. My sense is that, you know, Assuming we deal with some of the large-scale crises of our times, we will, in 20 or 30 years, I think, have a, have a, um, a very uh, significantly more developed culture of daily life practice. So I want to um, hopefully energize and inspire everyone, including myself, to, um, to see this as a common shared undertaking. How do I do it? How do I bring the metta into daily life? What are the uh, internal supports? What are the external supports? So I want to uh, 
divide my talk into three areas. The first is talking about more about individual practice in the context of daily life. The second is more about relational practice, being with others, metta in the context of being with others, whether it's one-on-one, friendships, partners, or being in groups or communities at work and so forth. And then the third area is bringing the energy and spirit of metta into our larger life in the world, into the more collective life that we we also share. So those three areas. And I do often think about the kind of supports which are really important in terms of both inner supports and outer supports. Inner supports would be our own practices, our own ways of working internally with different kinds of situations. And the external supports would be uh, the importance of community, of connections, of practice friendships, and so forth. That I think both are really, really crucial. I don't think this practice is doable in the, in the everyday world by ourselves. Or maybe it would be a rare person who could really thrive in that way. I think we, most of us, really need support. You know, I can think of... Um, when I first came to this area, which was about 25 years ago, and I would, um, and I had been more isolated before that. I was living in, um, I was living and working in Kentucky in rural Ohio. And uh, when I came out here, sometimes when I would just go into a setting with like-minded people, something would shift internally. I mean, I think we experienced that with multiple um, types of resonances with others, that something would just shift. I would feel like I could be myself more fully and I could, uh, uh, I was being nourished, basically. So something could, something could happen. And so there's a lot that we still very much need to develop in terms of those kind of more external supports. So first about um, individual practice, a few words to say, particularly about our, more of our inner practices. I think as we can see, uh, retreats can have a very special role in our practice. And one practice which I sometimes suggest to people is to know when your next retreat is. It will settle your mind. (laughs) And there's, there's a beautiful dynamic of connecting retreat practice with daily life practice. They can really inform each other, you know, and And so not all of us have the opportunity to do a lot of retreats, but we can do some. And if we can't do so many retreats for whatever reason, we can do something which is like a mini retreat, which is the practice of a Sabbath. You know, practice uh, both, uh, as it were, Eastern and Western. And it's something that I've done most of the last 30 years, taken a day or most of a day and... Uh, for the most part, no emails, no telephones, and really uh, having some boundaries for practice. And a lot of people I work with, it's not a whole day, it's a morning or it's an afternoon. But the regularity of that can make a huge difference. It becomes, as is the, really the intention for, for Sabbath over the millennia, it becomes a pivot for the week kind of like the center of the week. And so I would invite you to experiment with that. Three or four hours done regularly will have a profound effect in terms of going into something like a retreat space where we, it doesn't have to be the sitting and walking like we do here. It could be sitting, maybe taking a walk in the forest, um, doing some reading, some walking and so forth. There's something about leaving the habitual, getting some distance from the habitual that can change things, right? That gives some space. We just need some space away from the constant bombardment of the habitual. And so even a half a day can have a a big impact. The, The British historian Toynbee 
said that the basis for renewal in culture is the cycle of withdrawal and return. We can see that, we know what that's about. Withdrawing and then returning. And then of course, um, daily practice, very important. (laughs) We know that. It's great to use this retreat for those of us whose, how should we say it, um, Southern Baptist tradition, they talk about backsliders. I don't think we use, I don't think we use that language. But some of us have slightly lapsed practices, right? And using the momentum of the retreat to continue is not attachment. <laughs> we can really uh, use that to, to continue. It can be very, very wise to to uh, use the momentum of the retreat. But the daily practice is very crucial. Um, many questions often arise uh, now that we've done a meta retreat. And of course, many of you have done quite a few meta retreats. Uh, how much metta, how much mindfulness, etc. And I think it really um, is up to you. Some people after a meta retreat like to do half metta, half mindfulness. Um, I think to continue the metta practice so it really becomes a force in your life, I would recommend 10 to 20 minutes a day of metta. You can do it in a lot of different forms. It doesn't have to be sitting meditation. You know, people, I'll I'll get to this more later, but people do metta in all sorts of circumstances, at meetings, uh, driving, you know, at meals. all sorts of things. So I'll talk more about the different venues, but finding some ways to, you know, walking around town, you know. I remember when I was first practicing, I lived in Boston, and I was a student, and I uh, complained about not having enough time for practice. And I didn't have a car at the time, and I used public transportation almost all the time. And I said, and I walked a lot, and I said, I'll just have my walking time be practice time. And all of a sudden, double or triple my amount of available practice time. So consider that. Consider that option. Some people like to do only metta after a metta retreat for some time. That is perfectly fine. I think once I did only metta for six months, you know, in my formal practice, and that's just fine. It's really to trust your intuition on that. You know, because again, we've been emphasizing how as metta gets more mature, it's very much is a mindfulness and wisdom practice, and vice versa, you know. So, it's also, I think, really, uh, really helpful for a meta practice to do these other practices which are about gladdening the heart, to find these different ways to gladden the heart. So, if the joy practice or the, the, uh, practice of uh, even the compassion, the equanimity, the gratitude practice. You know, if you want to read our gratitude list every day, you will stay connected to the retreat. (laughs) Uh, But some way of gladdening the heart, it could be the formal meditation, it could be being with beauty and making that something that you do every day. I had a practice for about a year where I would go in the forest for an hour every day. And it made a difference. So it could be the beauty of the forest, could be the beauty of music or art, but to be with beauty and gladden the heart, it really is an energy connected with metta. I've also heard it said yeah, in, in connection with what uh, Heather was talking about, metta is an antidote to fear. I've also heard it said that beauty is an antidote to fear. Quite interesting. There was uh, about, about uh, eight, eight or nine years ago, I did a, uh, a longer metta retreat, about five weeks of metta. And it was right at the time when I was supposed to be finishing um, the book that's uh, out there, <laughs> which I did finish, The Engaged Spiritual Life. And I was supposed to be finishing it. And after five weeks of metta, 
all I really wanted to do with a lot of my time was to have my living space be more beautiful. (laughs) It's interesting that we have a phrase for that. It's called interior decoration. (laughs) (laughs) And metta practice is also interior decoration. (laughs) And I was able to convince my editor to delay my deadline by four months. <laughs> very, very, very appreciative. And so I think there's more beauty in my home now. So. A lot of our meta practice in daily life really can also be organized around um, focusing on intention. You know, we've emphasized how metta is an intention practice. It's the intention to incline towards the kind heart. It's, again, not a production practice. We let be what what is. We incline, then we let it be whatever it is. And connecting with intention in daily life is wonderful. You know, before a meeting, can I have the intention of kindness before a difficult conversation? Can I work with intention? Can I work with the intention to, okay, in this, as I walk, Um, on this errand, let me incline towards metta and so forth. So intention, very, very crucial. Both could be both the intention that we might make maybe at the end of our sitting or the beginning of our sitting for the day. And it also could be an intention in different activities. We can do it like uh, Julia Butterfly Hill, whom Heather uh, really read from, she has a line that I love, which is uh, really is a practice. She says, is my activity coming out of love? And she tries to ask that with each action, each activity. Is it coming out of love? And so intention, very, very crucial. Netta has tremendous power to transform. It can give us tremendous balance to be with the kindness and the sense of love. Tremendous balance for our lives, you know. I've had friends in Thailand who practice metta in prison to keep their balance of mind. We, and we can know that generally in our practice, really connecting with the kind heart is so crucial for being with our difficult places. It really is a kind of... Um, um, balancing force. It's a tremendous resource. And the the metta also, as we hang out more with metta, I think we we have a phrase that we we like to use uh, when we teach the judgmental mind retreat, which is that metta and the other heart practices shift our center of gravity. And a lot of times we actually learn and transform, not so much by going in there and defeating the bad habits and engaging in battle and dealing with them, but we actually change, I think social change is often like this, because we shift to another way of being, which is very attractive, <laughs> you know? And actually we, we, to some extent, leave the old habits behind. Quite interesting. Metta can also be a powerful antidote, as Heather was saying, can be an antidote to fear. So when the metta is well-developed, We wake up in the middle of the night, something hasn't gone well yesterday, we judge ourselves. Time for metta to the rescue. (laughs) Can sit up, start practicing metta when there's something that's uh, difficult and it's too much. If you can do mindfulness with difficult patterns, maybe first choice. But when it's too much or it's the middle of the night, really vulnerable, metta is an antidote. Very powerful antidote. I experienced something like this. I thought I'd tell this, tell this story. I don't think I've told it before on a meta retreat. About three years ago, three or four years ago, uh, I was at a retreat in Colorado at Taramandala. And I, um, I, was cam- I, I chose to camp. And the people showed me to a very attractive site. And they said, well, there was a bear here a week ago, <laughs> but we found it and it's, it's no longer around. And it was an attractive place and I sort of said, okay. And 
Then I had to go back to the retreat. And then it came evening and I went to my place. (laughs) And I started thinking about the bear. There weren't even any noises. (laughs) But they had actually told me details of what the bear did (laughs) the week before that it had actually gone and gone right into a tent and torn it totally up. Luckily, there was no one inside. Anyway, I'm not sure of my state of mind when I said, okay, I'll stay there. But in any case, so I started thinking about the bear and it was, you know, I realized I wasn't, uh, likely to go to sleep soon. <laughs> and so I did say, it's time for metta. <laughs> and I started practicing metta. And it was metta for me and metta for the bear. <laughs> and after three hours of metta, <laughs> this is a true story. So it must have been like, what, 1.30 or something. After three hours of metta, I was at peace. (laughs) And I think I must have been at, maybe I was just very tired. (laughs) But I was at peace with whatever would happen. You know, intellectually I knew that the bear wasn't going to come, but sometimes that doesn't help so much. And and so... um, at that point, I had no more thoughts of the bear. Because metta is all, as we know, it's a concentration practice. I had no thoughts of the bear. I went to sleep. I slept really well. It was a seven-day retreat. I had no more thoughts of the bear the entire rest of the retreat. Interesting. You know, you might not get in the situation in the first place. But, <laughs> but if you do, if you find yourself in a difficult place, Metta can be very effective as an antidote. And so we have the outer supports really crucial as well. Community, sometimes having mentors for metta, metta, uh, mentors for our practice, friends, uh, people you connect with. You know, if there's someone that you connect with tomorrow morning, doing something like sharing an email once a week about your metta practice can be incredible, right? There are a lot of opportunities. I think, I think uh, Sylvia and Carol Wilson exchanged emails. I don't know, was it every day? Do you know, was it every day? I think it was about, they exchanged gratitude emails. I think every day for a year or two. There's a lot that's possible, you know. Um, I'm sure, you know, you can have a collection of 20 people who have apps that tell you when they're doing metta. <laughs> a, lot, a lot's possible. Um, we, we had, uh, for a number of years, a monthly group that came out of this retreat of people meeting once a month for metta for a few hours and a potluck in San Francisco. Quite beautiful. If anyone wants to initiate that, leave something on the board. It's a wonderful idea. I don't know if it's happening now. So a lot of, a lot of possibilities there. Maybe just one other thing to say about individual practice. Larry talked during the introduction of um, metta related to speech practice that staying in the body is very, very crucial. And there's something that is quite important in relation to metta practice that we balance the, the mind and the heart and the body. It's possible for the metta practice to not have all those three elements well-developed. When that happens, there can be imbalances. You know, I, I think my own conditioning, for example, was first to kind of be trained to use my mind, and then uh, a lot of development of the heart. And I think the full grounding in the body was third, came later. And I know that having uh, like an open heart without full grounding in the body, left me open to being knocked around. You know, could be open and sensitive and so forth. And, you know, and, and, uh, and have the spirit of metta come out. But there was something about uh, sometimes um, it wasn't fully grounded. 
And so practices which help us with the grounding, whether it's walking meditation or doing some body practice, uh, very, very helpful. Qigong, yoga, really staying connected with the body in a way that you can really ground. I think this is quite important generally to, um, it's it's a way to uh, protect the, the open heart and really to ground it and have it be more effective in a number of situations. So if that resonates with you, maybe you can, uh, we can talk about it more tomorrow, but to find ways to, uh, find ways to ground more and more in the body. So it's not so much just, oh, I bring my kind heart, but I bring my grounded, wise, kind heart to the situation more and more. And all of this is training. For myself, and I, I know I've talked with many others, grounding the body took a while because I was not trained to be embodied. That's true for many of us in this culture. So metta in a relational context, how to bring metta into, into our relationships, into our being with others. We have to be creative to find many more venues for metta. And I mentioned we can do metta at meetings, We can, especially if we're not in charge, (laughs) harder taking leadership roles, but you can, you can actually be doing metta uh, during meetings and, you know, and still pay attention to the agenda and so forth. We can do metta in public places, do versions of metta for all being in public places, quite something, right? Do it on public transportation. You can just go from one person to another, four phrases for each person. Do it on BART if you're in the Bay Area, you know. It really can be uh, worked with like that. As I mentioned, quite a few people use uh, metta when they're driving. And I think with due safety precautions. <laughs> but it's, you know, it's like, it's, um, it's really possible to uh, have some of one's energy going outward. And again, it's mostly to have this intention to bring the heart forward in the situation. One area which uh, some of you know about is using metta with emails. And uh, at that retreat that I mentioned where I was on uh, retreat for five weeks with metta, I had some outside responsibilities right at the end of the retreat and then I had to look at emails. And I downloaded, uh, at that time, that was like eight or nine years ago, I downloaded only 400 emails from five weeks. Nowadays, it'd probably be like five times that or something. But, um, and um, I had been saying metaphrases about 18 hours a day for five weeks. So they didn't stop with the emails. And I found myself almost naturally developing a practice where I would do four phrases with each email. It slowed the email down a little bit. At that time, it didn't matter at the, at the retreat, but because um, I kept doing it. And what I tried to do was I would say four phrases with the email, and then I would try to bring into the body the email something which expressed the spirit of metta. You know, was, the main thing was the internal feeling. Sometimes I would say, I hope this finds you well. And, you know, over time, I, all my, a lot of my friends started writing me back with the same words and I had to change them from time to time not to be too obnoxious, you know, so I would just say, I hope your spirits are good or something. <laughs> but it's something, it's, you know, this, this is a great question all of us have, how to bring our practice into the electronic world, right? Not so much from the Buddha on that. And, <laughs> and here we, you know, this is, so I offer that practice or you can do your version of it, but a lot of it's the slowing down coming into the heart in these uh, regular activities. The precepts are really, really crucial for metta. They support our practice tremendously to really stay with the ethical precepts and to work with them. They're, as we've said, they're protectors. We protect ourselves, we protect others. The ability of the heart to come out in an everyday circumstance, 
depends to some extent on feeling safe or relatively safe. The precepts help with safety tremendously. They're really about cultivating safety for self and other. So really, really crucial to bring that sense of um, safety through the precepts. You know, and metta itself brings about a certain kind of safety. There's that line that Heather gave, which I think I have in a little different translation. I visited all quarters with my mind, said the Buddha, nor found I any dearer than myself. Self is likewise to every other dear. One who loves oneself will never harm another. Right. When, when I first heard that, which was about, I think about 12 years ago from, from my colleague Guy Armstrong, it was electrifying for me. One who loves oneself will not harm another. I, I'll come back to that because I think it has tremendous implications for bringing that into the world. You know, it's really about uh, where is there, what, what helps with love of self? And where are there, where are there conditions which make love of self difficult for certain groups of people, certain parts of the world and so forth. I'll come back to that. But it's really, it's really the way that uh, in, when we cultivate metta, we actually offer a certain kind of safety to others and to ourselves. And really, really crucial, that sense of, sense of safety or relative safety. Bringing metta into our speech is fundamental because we're talking so much. Did you remember how much you talked sometimes? We talk so much and there, there's a way in which if we can have met the intention of metta in our speech, it's incredible. There's a, this is from a, a young boy uh, who, uh, who was one of a group of kids asked by professionals, what does love mean to you? This is Billy, age four, he said, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. And Larry gave the guidelines for speech practice. And I think uh, the traditionally four guidelines taught in different ways, but I tend to interpret them as being truthful, being helpful, really coming out of the heart of metta and then having good timing and a sense of appropriateness. And you can see that one of the four guidelines and, and all of them have to be there for a skillful speech. It's not like you choose one of them. You have to have all of those. And metta is right there as part of, as part of speech. And so we can really work with those guidelines. I, I taught uh, at one point, uh, uh, about a six-month class on speech practice. And I know I had those guidelines by my telephone. And I would, every time there was a telephone, I would look at a, the list, which was on my wall, and I would say, truthful, helpful, good heart, good timing, hello. <laughs> and you can do that. And I, would, I sometimes would have those on a piece of paper when I was at a meeting. You know, and there are all these ways, you know, there's, again, I'm sharing a lot of different ways that we can be creative with the metta. One of the ways that uh, metta expresses itself, both in speaking and more generally in relationships, is by cultivating empathy. By cultivating the, the interest, really, in another's experience, which I think is a natural quality. But when we're busy or when we're a little distressed, we're not always very empathic. So we can actually cultivate empathy as a practice. I think it's one way of bringing metta into speech. One way of doing that is simply to tune in and uh, as a practice. What is the other person feeling? What seems to matter for the person? That's a practice I got from Yanako. You know, in a, we, we actually teach a, a longer retreat on speech practice. Very simple empathy practice, which you can do regularly, is just to be at a meeting, be with another, and take as a practice, what is my sense of what is this person is feeling? What really matters for the person? And particularly valuable, of course, when there's some difficulty or some um, tension 
in the relationship because generally speaking, with difficult people, empathy goes out the window, right? And so having the deliberate attempt to bring empathy into a situation is a way of bringing metta into, into relationships. If we can to take our being with difficult people, so-called, and we always have to remember to have difficult people in quotation marks. Do you think there are objectively difficult people? I'm not looking for answers. (laughs) Um, There can be some people whom a large number of people agree are difficult. That's true. But uh, I once did a series of uh, talks and workshops on being with difficult people and I came to the what could be called the blazing insight into the totally obvious when I saw that what constitutes a difficult person is that I have difficult experiences with that person. Do you get the switch? (laughs) Of course, a lot of people might have difficult experiences with the same person, but but it's really about my having difficulty and I can have difficulty with one person one year and not the same thing happens, I don't have it again. So to bring empathy, to to work with challenges to metta in our daily life. There's a Tibetan slogan, turn all obstacles into the path of practice. Take difficulties not as the reason for a curse or for a judgment, negative judgment, but as a starting point for practice. Very interesting. Take difficulty or a difficult person as saying, oh, time to practice more. It changes everything. And when one can do that, and it takes a certain amount of confidence, when one can do that, practice accelerates. So finally, bringing metta practice into our life in the larger world. It's really about bringing, we might say, love, loving kindness, compassion into the larger world, which of course so deeply needs it. You know, and we really need to, uh, if I can say this, we really need to share our metta practice with the world in our work, Find ways that metta can become alive in your work in the world. And I know we're already doing that. Let it, let it grow. Let that grow. There's a beautiful vision that's found in so many traditions of connecting our inner work with outer service and action in the world. It's in multiple traditions. In indigenous communities, there's the sense, I think, always that one's Spirituality is in service to the community. In Jewish tradition, there's the phrase uh, tikkun olam, that one's vocation is to repair the world, to bring one's inner qualities, to repair an often broken world. We could interpret the life of Jesus in that way as well. Uh, the writer Andrew Harvey on the life of Jesus. The life and work of Jesus combines the deepest mystical absorption in the divine with the most absolute and selfless work for justice and compassion in the world. And there's a vision which may really um, resonate with many of us to combine that inner work with service and action in the world. In, In whatever way we do, it doesn't mean necessarily being on the front lines. It could be whatever we do. It could be teaching. It could be being a psychotherapist. It could be being a yoga teacher. It could be being a parent. But some sense of bringing our practice into that larger world can often be through a sense of service, that my life is about helping others. There's the incredible model in Buddhist tradition of the bodhisattva, or in Pali, the bodhisattva, And we can interpret that, uh, the bodhisattva, in different ways. And I think a lot of us are interpreting it in a more contemporary way as one who combines deep inner practice with helping others and wants to do both. The bodhisattva knows the depths of wisdom, knows the depths of metta, and brings 
that training into service, into work, into action in the world. Some vows that the Bodhisattva has made historically. These are different Bodhisattva vows from the uh, Theravada tradition. Crossed, this is from the fifth century. Crossed, I would cross others. Freed, I would free others. Tamed, I would tame others. Calmed, I would calm others. Comforted, I would comfort others. Attained to Nibbana, I would lead others to Nibbana. Purified, I would purify others. Enlightened, I would enlighten others. From the Zen tradition, living beings are infinite, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to cut through them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. The Buddha way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it. And the Bodhisattva trains much as we've trained. The Bodhisattva trains and develops a number of qualities. The Bodhisattva trains in generosity. The Bodhisattva trains in mindfulness. The Bodhisattva trains in ethics. The Bodhisattva trains in wisdom. The Bodhisattva trains in metta. And it's almost like we can think of a a contemporary toolkit for being of service to others. I think there's a new vision of people who combine those inner qualities with helping others and something very deeply needed by the world. I think especially in the light of the challenges of contemporary world, I think the people who are gonna really um, help meet our challenges are gonna have those qualities. They're gonna be trained in those qualities. There's a vision that I think is for me very uh, beautiful of a contemporary bodhisattva, a contemporary person who combines that deep inner work with service. And it echoes very much, I'm thinking of tomorrow being the public celebration of Dr. King's birthday, it echoes very much with his teachings. His teachings are that love must become a force in the world. This is from one of his um, speeches. The call for a worldwide fellowship that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing and unconditional love for all human beings. When I speak of love, I am not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I'm speaking of that force which all of the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. Love love is somehow the key that unlocks the door which leads to ultimate reality. And he went on to say how that's found in all traditions, Jewish, Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, and so forth, Christian. It's that love going outward that calls many of us. The writer and activist uh, Cornell West says that um, love is the public face, or no, sorry, Justice is the public face of love. Justice is the public face of love. And I was pleased, many of us were pleased that uh, President Obama has been studying metasome. He went to Burma and visited with uh, Aung San Suu Kyi and gave a speech in Burma. And he said this, I have seen just earlier today the golden stupa of Shwedagon and have been moved by the timeless idea of metta, the belief that our time on this earth can be defined by tolerance and by love. And then he quoted Aung San Suu Kyi, fear is not the natural state of civilized man. And he said, I believe that. 
So we have to remind him that he said that once. <laughs> A little political commentary, sorry. <laughs> that line, one who loves oneself will not harm another, really struck me as powerful as pointing to how, uh, pointing in so many directions that really that line, one who loves oneself will not harm another. First of all, it pointed to how love of self is so crucial for uh, spiritual life. It's not selfish, right? We, we may go home and say, I offered metta to myself for one week. So, oh, one of those selfish Buddhists. <laughs> no, but it's not. I think we, we, know, we know the answer to that one, right? We know that there's some kind of balance and actually to love another we have to love ourselves, that, that there's a relationship between them. And that it's very hard to love another if we don't love ourselves. The other point that really seemed beautiful to me coming out of this is that when we don't love ourselves, we are more prone to harm others. And so actually bringing about self-love in the society is a way to deal with violence. It's a very fundamental way to deal with violence and, and harm. And that may inspire some of you. I think it's, I think it's, very, it's a very uh, beautiful point. I think we, those of us who've looked into some of the roots of violence and harm know that so much of that comes out of come out of conditions where people do not love themselves. Often from oppression or from situations which make it hard to love themselves or the messages that are negative. So metta can be a tremendous force in the world. It can be the force inspiring us individually. It can be the basis for a new kind of, uh, um, a new kind of bodhisattva, a new kind of person acting in the world. Coming out of one's own sense of warmth and kindness and bringing that further into the world. It can give one the balance to work with situations that are fearful. It can be an antidote if metaphorical bears appear in your life. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think we can see that it's, it's actually way more than just an individual practice to feel a little better about yourself. It actually goes quite deeply. I think our talks throughout the week have really wanted to have uh, a big horizon for our meta practice. We believe that. This is something that we've done here, but it has a lot of uh, um, possible implications and a lot of beautiful um, what consequences when we bring it out into the world. So let me end with a few uh, short readings about the spirit of metta and bringing it out into the world in whatever way we we find suitable. So I think three three readings. First is uh, Walt Whitman, the great poet from the 19th century. It's interesting. It kind of starts just like the Metta Sutta. Okay? This is what you should do. (laughs) He, he doesn't say, for those who are skilled in goodness <laughs> and who know the path of peace. Right? This is what you should do. Love the earth and sun and animals. Despise riches. Give alms to everyone that asks. Stand up for the stupid and crazy. Devote your income and labor to others. Hate tyrants. Argue not concerning God. Have patience and indulgence towards the people. Re-examine all you have been told in school or church or in any book. 
Dismiss what insults your very soul and your flesh shall become a great poem and have the richest fluency not only in the words but in the silent lines of its lips and face and between the lashes of your eyes and in every motion and joint of your body. (laughs) And then from uh, Dorothy Day, the uh, founder of Catholic Worker and uh, someone who also brought together the inner and the outer so beautifully. The greatest challenge of the day is how to bring about a revolution of the heart. You will know your vocation by the joy it brings you. You will know. You will know when it's right. Don't worry about being effective. Just concentrate on being faithful to the truth. And then last, um, from the Zen teacher, Odo Sesho Roshi. So this is a Zen statement, so you have to kind of listen for the subtlety, okay? I'll just preface it by that. But it's really related to the whole talk, okay? In Zen, there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden. It doesn't matter how big the garden is. That's it. May, may our practice of metta keep going, find all sorts of ways to come alive in all the different parts of our lives, and may it help whatever garden we are sweeping, whether it is small, wherever it is, whether it's a really, really big garden like the garden of the world. May our metta practice uh, be there for us in whatever we're doing. So thank you very much for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.